This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Rochelle Unreich, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm excited to be here. I think I got that accent right at the end of the word. Perfect. (laughs) I am hopeless with accents, but anyway, there you go. Welcome, welcome. I'm so want to, there's so much I want to know about you. And I think we have a lot in common. Uh, Yes, we do. So firstly, I'm going to introduce you and then I want to really find out, talk to you about your career and how you came to write this book. Rochelle has lived in New York, Los Angeles, Sydney, and Melbourne. She has been a journalist for 38 years, winning cover stories for The Age, Harper's Bazaar, Murray Claire, Rolling Stone, which are all quite diverse, I might add, and others, and has had regular columns in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Herald Sun, and Elle magazine. Her work has appeared extensively in Australia, the US, UK, and Southeast Asia. She's here to talk about her book, A Brilliant Life, which weaves together the past and the present to capture the powerful connection between a mother and child. Very powerful story and particularly powerful at this moment in time. But I want to go back to how you, I mean, all those places I love, New York. I used to do a house, you probably know this, I used to do a, I was on a home swap site years ago now and I used to swap with this Australian woman who I've never met but we did it for years. I'd live in her apartment in New York at Williamsburg and she'd come and live at my place at Petership. And we would kind of cross over, like she'd be flying to me where I'd be flying to my place and I'd be flying to hers. So I loved my time there. LA, I've been to many times. And of course, I love Melbourne and live in Sydney. There you go. (laughs) I love all those places too. And New York is like still a person I fell in love with and Mm. dear in my heart. Yeah, it is like that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Once you're there and you live there, it really gets into your system. So tell me about your journey to writing, to being a journalist. So I started writing when I was studying arts law at Monash University, not at all expecting to write. And one day I'd been on a trip to New York. I had jet lag and at night I wrote a piece just to get over jet lag. I sent it off to The Age and they published it. And it's- Oh, wow. <laughs> what was it? It was a sort of a humorous piece on America in response to an American comedian writing the same on Australia. It ran with my photo on a full page. And so suddenly I had this established writing career. I kept I kept doing my law degree, but by the end of that, I had a full-time writing career going because I kept submitting stuff. Uh, my mother, who I write about in my book, was so nervous that I would give up my law degree. Yeah. So I remember when I got excited about my first article, she said, and I'll put on her accent, she said, a bird in the hand is worth more than a cow on the roof. I don't know what that <laughs> meant. I think it meant not to get carried away. Yeah. Did you ever but practice law? 
No, I didn't. I didn't. I don't think what I realized was I did law after I saw And Justice for All with Al Pacino. And my aspirations should have been to write that film rather than be a lawyer. (laughs) I love that book. I think I'll watch that again now that you brought that up. And um, I moved to Los Angeles to study part of my law degree and also study screenwriting and writing. And from there, I just worked both in the film industry and in writing and never looked back. Mm. And what was your upbringing like? Tell me about how your uh, family came to Melbourne. So my family, my parents both emigrated here separately after the Holocaust. My father came in the early 50s and my mother in the late 50s. Theirs was a second, it was my mother's second marriage and they met here. They were both originally from Czechoslovakia and found love here with each other. Mm. They loved Australia. They both individually just thought Australia was such a haven. They were passionate about it in every way from Mm. other, from the produce to the landscape, to the people, Mm. they really felt at home here. Mm. Particularly Melbourne, I think, like I think, you know, um, Sydney is more, and particularly back then would have been more city-like than Melbourne was in a way. Because my mother came from Paris at that point where she she loved the big lights and the city and the fashion, but I think she just felt Melbourne was so comforting. Mm. And in actual fact, Australia had a large proportion of Holocaust survivors, Mm. the largest per capita outside of Israel. So Mm. they had a lot of friends who'd been through the same thing as them, and I think that helped, Mm. my mother particularly. It's interesting how that happens with immigration because that happened with my parents too. The reason why they came to Sydney is because other people in their villages had come to Sydney. You know, Mm -hmm. other Lebanese people had come here. And I think that, you know, when you're in that like complete unknown, where am I going? What am I doing? It is really important to find community. It's really interesting. And and I'm sure there'd be a similar story with your parents. Like when my parents came, they came and went, but when they finally came, there was a man called Antoine Andluffert and he owned a butcher in Redfern. And upstairs in the butcher was a room, just one room, big room and a bathroom. And he used to give it to families when they first arrived to live there until they find their feet. And we were there, six children and two adults in one room, one bathroom and one kitchenette for a year before my parents found a place to live. It's extraordinary, isn't it? They they were incredible, weren't they? Well, you know, this is a book about connections and the weird connections in the world. And I lived above a butcher, a butchery belonging to a woman who saved my mother in Auschwitz when I lived oh in Germany, she was, she's in my book, her name is Edit Rose and her family had a butchery and I lived in their little studio apartment in that. Where was that? In Sydney. In Where about? Wow. Yeah, it's not there anymore but, and I come from butchery roots too. There <laughs> you go. But that, that just, there's so much I think when you sit down and talk to a person Isn't it incredible the endless connections you find and the way you relate and the themes that resonate in your life together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? So you have this amazing career. I'm not going to say had because I I reckon you're probably still writing. Is that right? Well, let's say journalism right this second, but I have written a few articles for the book. But I would hate to give up both, really. Yeah. So tell me when you started, when you decided to start writing long form and was this memoir the first attempt? 
Yeah, so I I think when I started getting published at 20, I thought one day it's important that I write my mother Mira's story. But I started getting, at the beginning, I didn't want to do it just then. My brother had been a book publisher in Australia. He was one of the independent book publishers with Outback Press. And so I grew up really revering books and I didn't want my name on a book if it wasn't the most excellent work I could do. So I put it off for a while, but then also somewhere along the way, I told myself that I couldn't write a book. People used to ask, can you write, when do you have a, when is your book coming out? And I hated the question so much. It felt like pressure that I started saying, oh, I don't know if I have a book in me. I didn't really believe that, but I started saying it. And eventually I did believe that. Mm. I just realized how important that not to sort of do that negative self-talk is. Mm. It started getting, as I got older, and especially after my mother passed away, and I know you'll understand this, I had nowhere to put that grief that Mm. I felt, that feeling of immense loss. And what had what I related to was words, when I read other people's words, when I'd read Patrimony by Philip Roth, I loved that story of his ailing father, Mm. when I read A Very Easy Death by Simone de Beauvoir. Words meant so much to me and I wanted to commit mine to paper. Mm. But I, and COVID gave me an opportunity, but I still kept writing and discarding and not quite sure I could do it. And then one day I went for a walk with my neighbour, Diana, who was in my five-kilometre radius. It was lockdown number six. And I was complaining about journalism, you know, all my work's dried up. I don't know when I'll write again. And I said, oh, and by the way, I also want to write my mother's story. And she stopped me in the street and she said, isn't that what your legacy should be? Mm. And I really thought hard about that word legacy and what it meant, not just for me, but for my mother, my mother's legacy and the fact that her experiences might die with her. And the next morning I got up and I sat at my computer and I started writing. I left at midnight that night and I did exactly the same seven days a week for six weeks. And at the end of that, I had a draft. Yeah, wow. And it was like something was propelling me. Like I really felt, and I don't want to impose my belief system on anyone else, but I felt like my mother's hand was beneath me helping Mm. me on this. Mm. So when did your mum die? Remind me. Almost seven years ago. Yeah, okay, and mine died one and a half, yeah, one and a half years ago. It's so, and I've talked about this before, losing any parent I think is so formative, right? We didn't really grow up with my father. He he left very early on in the piece. But losing a mother, whether you have both parents or you're just a single parent, is so, losing a father is incredibly sad, but losing your mother I think changes the course of your life. Now, I used to think if you were young and you lost your mum, like if you were 10 or because I know many people that have or 18 or 16, that it, that is so life-changing, right? Oh. But I didn't think at the age of, I can't remember how I was, uh, 57 maybe, uh, I didn't think that that would be the same at 57 and I don't know how old you were when you lost your mum. But, again, I feel that it had the same impact. It was so life-changing in terms of identity. 
Mm. Well, and I think of two things. One is, as you say, we're sort of trained in society to think that once a person's lived a good life, we say they've had Mm. good endings. But I always think of something Stephen Colbert said when his mother died and he said she was 91 and I, I might get it slightly wrong, but he said, uh, he said, I may, I know it may sound greedy to want more days with a person who lived so long, but the fact that my mother was 91 does not diminish. It only magnifies the enormity of the room whose door has now quietly shut. Mm-hmm. And I think that sense of impact really spoke to me. One of the things that somebody said to me, which is in the book, which was the most profound words of condolence was so simple. They said, mother is mother. And we all know what a mother means. A mother is somebody who nurtures us, who loves Mm. us, who champions Mm. us. You don't need to describe who they are because it's inherent in that title. Mm. You lose a mother, mother is mother. Mm. There's no further explanation needed. It's Mm. so deep. Mm. Do you know, years ago um, I worked with this woman and she told me that she'd lost her parents and she felt like an orphan. And I thought, oh, that's so weird. She has children. She has a husband. Why would she feel like an orphan? Well, I now know. I know the feeling. I know the unanchored feeling. And really, I mean, you know, 18 months on and seven years on for you, I'm finding my own way, but it's still a new way. Mm. It took me, I felt, about three years to really myself out of that hole. And the most, the thing that helped me most was when I, thought about how um, Jewish people, what they say when when you lose somebody and they say, may their memory be a blessing. Mm. And what that means is that when the person's no longer on this earth to carry out their good deeds, you stand as a person living, you stand in their stead and you carry out the good deeds that they would have done. Mm. And therefore their memory does become an actual blessing. Mm. And I think the way you speak about your mother and I know you've brought me so much joy when you speak about her on the podcast that really helps. I've created, I, I've looked up what your mother looks like. I have <laughs> created a picture in my head of how she was and how she fed people. Mm-hmm. And that does inform me when I entertain people. I think of my mother. I think of mm-hmm. your mother. Mm-hmm. I think of baking things. You know, just conjuring up who a person is, is mm-hmm. so important. It is really so important. I'm not sure if I've told this story, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you and then we're going to talk about your mum. Years ago, and you know, the, you you know this. Like you know, our my relationship with her was up and down because I was fiery, I was feisty, I broke a lot of ground that my sisters, my older sisters, didn't. Like they were always so good, but I was probably the rebel. I mean, and that's lot. You know, I mean, I did hardly anything, but compared to my sisters, it, I was probably a bit troublesome for her. But anyway, I remember walking through. We were living in Marrickville, and I walked through. Um, uh, St. Bridget's Church. She was a Maronite Catholic, but she also, um, that was her local church and she was deeply religious. She went to Mass every single day. That's certainly something that hasn't been passed down to me. <laughs> but anyway, I remember walking through and they were having like a fate and they had all these food out and they had a stall, a Lebanese food stall. So I went up and, you know, and I was with a friend and I'm like, wow, this food's fantastic. It tastes just like my mother's. And we're eating and we're buying it and walking home. And and anyway, when I told her, I said, oh, you know, you should go up to St. Bridget's. They've got this fantastic Lebanese food stall. <laughs> And she said, yes, well, I supplied all the food. Uh, (laughs) So I was eating her food. 
<laughs> and I love that story about her because she had a finger in so many pies. You yeah. know, she was always doing stuff. And that's a really lovely memory I have of her. Of course and it's her food. Why didn't I even think of that? <laughs> and aren't recipes incredible to bring a person yes. to life? They're such a tangible way to do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's really interesting. I, I Now get me back on track, but I'll tell you this last one. <laughs> I was in San Francisco, and you, as you probably know, I spent a lot of time there, and I was reading a New Yorker, a hard copy New Yorker, so it was a few years ago, and it was this journalist saying that she walked into an Indian restaurant and had an Indian meal, and it made her think about, I don't know whether it was her mother or her aunt, but she you know, she really recognised the food, the food tasted familiar to her, blah, 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 went home and just like, you know, oh, my God, that was sensational and it tasted like food from home. And, of course, a few days later she realised it was her mother's sister's restaurant. Hmm. And I think that flavour even transcends in family. Do you think that? Absolutely. I know that in our family we get together for our Friday night dinners and we cook my mother's recipes, which my nephew lovingly did by her side and got them all down while she was living. Oh, wow. It really brings, there's something visceral Mm. about the smells and the tastes of your childhood Mm. and of your past. Mm, it's mm. like smelling a scarf filled with perfume of the person you loved. Mm. It is absolutely like that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I was in hospital when they had to clear my mum's house out recently because they sold it and I couldn't be there, you know, which was a huge loss to me, but, you know, it had to be done and my sisters had to move forward with it. But the only thing I wanted from that house, the only thing I wanted is she had this green plastic bowl and a pink plastic bowl because they never had much and they never needed much to cook a feast. Unlike me, I've got everything. And she used to just, those bowls only ever came out Good Friday when she used to make these little donut balls. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I had started videoing them over the years when Instagram came about. And I realized that it was the same apparatus. It was the same like green bowl, same pink bowl, same. And, you know, that's all I wanted. Yeah, so those memories fold into each other, I think. And Don't every they? time you do that, you think yeah. of all those times. Yeah, yeah. All right, now tell me about her life and tell me, I feel that for you it would have been hard writing it in her absence. Did you feel that maybe you wished you'd written it while she was still there? Tell me about those feelings because it would have been so many. I do because of even, you know, I took real real pains to fact check it and to verify everything. And there are some things I had to leave out because I didn't have her description. And so I wished I could say, what did that barricade for? 
but it was there was joy in writing it as well so mm. I would say it, there were really really difficult bits her story was there were parts of it that are so grim she was in four concentration camps including Auschwitz talk to me about that did you have an understanding of that when you were little I don't remember ever not knowing about it, but she spoke about her time in a really matter-of-fact way and didn't dwell on it. So it, I've heard from people recently who've known me all my life and didn't know she was in camps because it just didn't yeah. come up unless you saw her tattoo. But I I had heard her testimonies and I thought there were certain stories that I knew really well. What was so interesting was that I sat down with her in the last six months of her illness to not really ask her what happened to her, but really find out who are you as a person? How did you Mm. become such a positive, vibrant human despite everything you've gone through? What were your values? What did you want in life? And that was really the eye-opener for me. That's what I learned. And and through that, I also learned about her experiences too. So it was a really nuanced conversation. So you were aware growing up that she had been in a concentration camp? Uh, Very aware. Look, I didn't have any of my grandparents. All four of my grandparents had Mm. been killed. So you ask those questions very early on and you Mm. find out. Mm. And I'd learned things about the Holocaust at school, but she was pretty open about her experiences. And, yeah, that was something we spoke about when asked. Mm. Mm. And could she speak about them, you know, with frankness? How was it that she told the stories to you? I often wondered about that when I wrote it because she told the stories in a very similar way. So part of me thinks that she told them in a way to protect herself. You know, when you've got a traumatic story and you know the details you share, there is a protection around that. You don't have to reopen wounds. Interestingly enough, I think the stories that really affected her was she saw a resistance fighter being hung in Auschwitz and she spoke about that rarely. Her name was Rosa Robota and that really affected her, as did her sister who had also died, who'd been killed. That was... In a camp. Yeah, well, so her sister was deported and my mother never knew where she was deported to. Originally, she wrote, she was allowed to write letters home, very censored letters, and then they stopped. And I found out through my research that she was transported to a specific ghetto. And then from there, there were a a minor amount of possibilities, whether she died in a camp or whether she died in that ghetto, I'm unsure. Mm. But my mother, I think I realised in the writing of it that she not only was so sad about the sister she lost, but so sad she didn't have that relationship. Mm. I really could hear that pain of she was only 15 when her sister was deported at 26 and there was so much grief in that, in not having the understanding of what a sister could eventually be in your life. Mm. Do you know, layers of grief, I really, I feel as though um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and you think about someone like Mira and the layers of grief that somebody like that has. I was only thinking about it the other day and I thought to myself, you know, it's just one of those things that practice never helps. Each grief is a trauma in itself and regardless of how many times you experience it, it's as brutal as the first time, I think. 
Well, I will say the postscript to her grief is that she managed to look forward and live like mm. live an incredibly uplifting life where she flourished. And part of me writing that book was trying to find out how did she get there? How did she mm. go through an incredible trauma and come out? And it was actually one of the reasons I wrote it because the woman I used to go for a walk with during COVID had also faced a really traumatic time and she kept wanting to hear about my mother. And what my mother's lesson was was that in times of unfathomable darkness, you really had to look for those cracks of light peering beneath. And if you couldn't find them, you had to be the light yourself with your essence. You had to actually choose to find a way out. Mm. And I really got to understand that more and more, that that forward thinking that seems so impossible. You have mm. to actually believe it is possible. Even if you can't do it in this moment, mm. just have faith mm. that you will be able to do it. And that I think made all the difference. Mm. I think a lot of people that um, have come out of, that have been Holocaust survivors, not everyone, of course, but that you hear a lot of stories about resilience, about getting on with it, about, you know, trying to live the best life that they can. And not that you want to have that experience to lead you there, but it is, it does seem to be a symptom, if you like, that's probably not the right word, but of, of that, don't you think? I do think there's something in that. Certainly a lot of these people didn't just survive because they were physically healthy. They had to have faith in something. And there's a story in the book where my mother arrives in concentration camp and it's the day of atonement where you're meant to fast. And despite getting these small rations, she nevertheless doesn't take the soup for lunch, takes the potato that's in it and puts it in her pocket. And during the day she prays with other women. And some women who heard this were outraged, like, who are you praying to? Why do you think there's a God? And my mother said, I had to believe that I could make a difference and I had to believe that there was a collective good in all of us doing this. And I think that's the whole point. To me, It's a, her story is one of faith, and I don't mean religious faith. I mean faith in humanity, faith in the world, faith in a positive future, I didn't write this book so that people read it and felt depressed and felt distraught and awful. I wrote wrote it so that it could help them in their most challenging times. Mm. Talk to me about your research and how you found all this information and how it is that you became, you know, you had a story. Did Was there a lot that she had left behind that you could draw on? So there were several testimonies she'd done, two with the Melbourne Holocaust Museum of several hours each, and then my friend, the author, Elliot Perlman, had also... Oh, I love Elliot. Yeah, Yeah, nice guy. Elliot and I went to high school and he had re-met me years and years later and he was researching the street sweeper. Mm. When he met her, he said, I've just got to interview her more so you've got an even more expansive record. So that was another eight hours of tremendous work. And then I had maybe uh, quite a number of interviews I'd done with her in those last six months. I started with that as a as a beginning point, but I know as a journalist that sometimes people forget things, there are discrepancies. So on top of that, I then did everything I could to fact check. I started with the museums, the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne, the Sydney Jewish Museum, the United States Holocaust Museum and Yad Vashem in Israel. I went to the Sered Museum in Slovakia, 
I went to the concentration camps foundations, so Auschwitz and Plushov and Memories of Treblinka Foundation. I searched genealogy sites and found descendants of people my mother knew and found out their stories. I had a document from my uncle who had written his story. I uncovered archives. I found at the beginning of the book there's a story about an escapee from Treblinka who becomes very important later on, and I found a testimony that no one in his family ever knew he gave that was buried in archives in Maryland in USA. So I was just really immersed in in all of this. Mm-hmm. You've written beautifully. Yeah, you really have. Let me just say that this is a gorgeous book. Mira, you will love. Uh, Rochelle, thank you so much. Cheryl, I really, as you know, I felt very connected to you through our mothers and through our words. I know you to be a person of very great and considered reading and uh, I've loved learning about your mother through you. And you too. (laughs) Thank you. I was nervous about this. I was really nervous. Have you done many podcasts yet? I have done a couple, but oh, good. A, I mean, yours is the one that I listen to. Yours is the one that oh, is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so it meant a lot to me because, I yes. mean, it was in my head from the beginning. Like seriously, when I sold my book, I thought, do I get to go on show up? <laughs> and it was when I had my first meeting with Hachette, I literally said to them, how can I get on show up? And they said, no, we'll, we'll arrange that. And I was just like so thrilled. That is so lovely. And that's a huge compliment coming from you. I love that. I love the way you consider books and I love, um, I mean, I love the the writers you have on, but I can hear in your voice what you respond to and, Mm. I mean, I feel like I know you. I really (laughs) want to try some of your food. I'll send you some of my mother. Hopefully my, no, the biscuits will last the distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll. I'll um, make you was, something. I'll make you something. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Me and Brian Brown. <laughs> Lovely to speak um, with you. Come and see me. I'm so okay. happy you're coming to Sydney. I okay. I'm wearing one of my T-shirts too. And then All you're right. We'll give you one. We will give you I've one. I've got one already. <laughs> you are a fan. I'm a super fan. <laughs> Thank you, lovely. Really nice to meet you. I'll see you soon. Thank you. I really appreciate the support. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. 
That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.